Thank you, Phil. Thank you, team. I see Chris Alex is slowly adopting my haircut, so pretty excited to see that today. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome again to Bethany. For those of you who are visiting with us uh, today or are new to our community, uh, my name is Eric Henderson, and I'm the Senior Associate Pastor uh, here at Bethany Greenlake. And in addition to leading our staff team and uh, teaching from time to time, uh, I serve as our worship pastor. My family and I started attending Bethany in, in 2007 after a great period of service uh, in another local church, and we showed up here uh, in need of some rest and perspective, as uh, we all do from time to time. We had decided to, to find a new church, and we had kind of had a lot of connections here at Bethany, uh, to find a new church and commit and serve, and then we would figure out my uh, career side of it uh, later, and little did we know that God was writing a story that was uh, much better than we could have uh, imagined. And after three years as a volunteer worship leader, I joined the staff team, uh, and since then have had just this incredible front row seat uh, to the incredible work that God is doing through this uh, local community. I tell you all this because I've been invested uh, very uh, heavily and personally in our worship life as a community uh, for a long time, and I'm excited that today our focus is worship. Uh, but this isn't going to be one of those semi-self-serving uh, worship leader uh, sermons about uh, you all singing louder and raising hands more, clapping after the songs, or, or why drums are, or new songs are biblical. All those things are great and true, and we trust that at home it's just a full-on uh, worship party uh, most weeks. But rather, this message is about our spiritual formation, about our right worship of God as the cornerstone of our lives. It's way bigger than the forms and expressions of worship uh, that we do in, in our services. In fact, my, my favorite definition of worship is this, that worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he's done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way that we live. So when I refer to worship, I'm not talking about just singing songs and, and listening to sermons. We're really talking about what our lives are about, who and what we're after. We're continuing our, our Lenten series called Formed in the Wilderness. And our title today is Formed in Worship. Now, Lent is this season of 40 days leading up to Easter, where we remember Jesus' own withdrawal into the wilderness for a time of prayer and testing before his death and resurrection. And just like Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness and Israel's 40 years, the wilderness is a place of disorientation and reorientation. It's a, it's a place of lessons and discovery and stark contrasts and stripping and refining. Perhaps like this last year has been for many of us and continues to be. Now, the wilderness, whether entered into intentionally uh, during Lent by giving things up and, and focusing on disciplines like prayer and, and fasting, or whether it's forced onto us through pandemic, it heightens our senses, it exposes our desires and hungers, and asks this question whether we realize it or not. Who or what do you worship? What, what has your allegiance, what has your attention and affection 
On what do you rely? What can't you live without? Is it freedom? Is it being right about stuff? Is it convenience, health, connection with others, alone time, carbs and sugar? Who or what you worship is a foundational question of the human experience. And in our text for today, God in his providence, wisdom, and loving kindness commands an answer to the question because worship is at the very core of who we are. In fact, and this is our thesis, our point of teaching for today, God established a covenant with Israel that they would be a nation of priests, of worshipers and worship leaders. And we are all wired for worship, designed to place our eyes on hope in and affections toward God. But just like Israel, we wander. The first three commandments are are given as a means by which we keep our whole selves oriented around God. And these commandments demand three things be true of our worship. First, our worship is a continual response to covenant. Second, we worship the giver, not the gifts. And third, our worship brings honor and justice. The goal in in our short time here is to unpack this particular text as we would in a Bible study and tease out these worship principles along the way. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for meeting us here in these moments, wherever we are. God, we cast our cares upon you. There's much to be anxious about, worried about, angry about. God, we continue to stand in the middle of incredible injustice. God, we pray that you would meet uh, all of us today uh, in our worries. We pray that we would focus now in this time on, on you, that as we bring things to you, that you would open up our hearts in our lives. Help us to, to dream new dreams. Help us to fly a little higher, to think a little deeper, to turn more and more of ourselves over to you. Lord Jesus, we need you. We love you. In your name, amen. So as we turn to the passage that, that Phil read for us, this is, of course, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And as we look at these this week uh, and next week, as, as Pastor Abby leads us, it's important to understand that the context in which these are given Uh, is covenant. So we back up a chapter and we see this covenant come into play. In Exodus 19, God has delivered the Israelites from their enslavement in Egypt, and he continues to save them, most recently in their defeat of the Amalekites. God is meeting their every need, and they continue to grumble. And by the way, this is their story, but this is also our story. This is my story. The summary of my life this past year uh, could be God is meeting Eric's every need while he continues to grumble. I can, I can see it now. Like here lies Eric. God met his every need while he grumbled. Maybe you can relate to this. And now the Israelites are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this is what happens. Let's read Exodus 19, three to six together. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And I just absolutely love this next verse. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom 
of priests and a holy nation. So this is the covenant laid out by God and Israel likes it. They, they sign on to it. This is essentially a marriage ceremony playing out in Exodus 19. And as Pastor Phil could attest, uh, many times in marriage, one or both parties isn't totally sure the depth of the commitment that they're making or, or how it might be tested along the way. And God, who had previously been speaking to the people through Moses and Aaron, speaks audibly to all the people. The text says, and God spoke all these words. He speaks his vows, essentially. And this marks a major turning point in Israel's relationship with God. And this is where we pick up the text for today. In this context of the covenant, God says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. At the very beginning of their priestly formation here, God says, this is personal. I am the Lord, your God. This covenant is a deeply personal relationship and he was and is speaking to each one of us. Hear that, God, God wasn't speaking to the religious leaders. He was speaking to the common Israelite in strong, simple terms. Each of us priests and God was forming their priestly worship. God says, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is how I've loved you. Remember. In this way, our worship is to be a continual response to covenant. Remember who God is. Remember his love. Remember his provision. Remember your vows. Now today, it feels like Christianity has, has kind of hit the mainstream. And so in our families and churches, there are people who are along for the ride. And this is actually a wonderful thing. You can belong before you believe. But they haven't spoken their vows or joined their heart to his. And God is inviting them. Maybe, maybe this is you. The invitation is beyond this kind of folk cultural Christianity to a real personal relationship with God. Secondly, God is saying, understand these, these laws, these boundaries I'm about to give are, are not a new form of bondage, but they create an incredible freedom. God says, I brought you out of the land of slavery. So this law isn't bondage and it's not even a means of salvation. It is instead instruction on, on how a redeemed life looks. These commands are given to a group of people who already belong to God. There's no earning. It's a, it's a free gift. God has acted first in his deliverance. So we can come to God, as Hebrews says, with confidence that grace is offered even when we fall short of God's commands. When we worship, we're responding to God's covenant love. Remember our definition of worship is our response to God. The Christian life is one of constant responses to God's revelation. God reveals himself through his word, through creation, and through his community, the church. Are we listening? I hear all the time uh, uh, things like, in part because I've said these things, I, I feel the silence of, of God right now. I'm just, I'm just not hearing his voice or I'm feeling distant from God. I, I say these things too. But it feels like nine times out of 10, like we're not seeking God where he's gonna be found. Not hearing God's voice? What's your, what's your media diet like? What books are you reading? Who are you talking to? Have you gotten outside? 
The Barna Group released a survey about a year ago, and they found that the average Christian millennial, that's, that's me, consumes over 3,000 hours of digital content each year, of which only 150 hours are quote-unquote Christian content. And this was for strong and committed Christians. This was the top of the, top of the list. That's a 20 to 1 ratio. Augustine's belief that you become what you contemplate might ring true here. Yes, the, the silence of God is a real thing. And if you're experiencing our, our pastors and prayer team, would love to walk with you uh, in the midst of that. But too often it feels like we're just not listening. In our text today, however, it is God's voice to their ears. God spoke directly to all the Israelites gathered at the foot of the mountain. Before this and after this, it's Moses and Aaron relaying the message. But today they hear him directly and he establishes his credentials. He said, I am the Lord, your God, and recalls for them his deliverance of them who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then God continues giving this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It's important again for us to understand this command in the context of the covenant that Israel has entered into with God. That this isn't about a hierarchy of gods with with Yahweh at the top of the list. Rather, this is about exclusivity. This uh, This is a closed marriage. It's not an open relationship. Consider a, a wedding ceremony. We used to go to these things called weddings, and I believe we will again. We're sorry for those of you who have changed your plans so many times and continue to do so. We're with you. We're here for you. But typically during a wedding, uh, right at the very beginning, just after the wedding party has, has taken their places, people have stood up for the bride coming down the aisle, and even before folks sit down, There's a commitment from each party that ends with uh, some version of this phrase. And forsaking all others, I will keep myself only to you. Like if this isn't about exclusivity, what, what are we doing? People stay standing until this commitment is made because if it isn't made, we're positioned to sort of grab our gift and, and uh, maybe some shrimp and head back to the car. Before we settle in, a commitment is made to exclusivity. Just like in a marriage, God is saying like this declaration in the Song of Songs, I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. This isn't about restriction. This is a claim about the relationship. The command is to be absolutely loyal to Yahweh, rejecting all other gods. God is after the heart of each person, not simply blind loyalty or, or good moral behavior, but a loving relationship. And Israel was to be this nation of worshipers and worship leaders through which all people would come to know God. It's fitting then that this first command upon which all the other commands are given uh, is because God knows our vulnerability to being drawn away and, and more often to adding to the list of gods in our lives. In the days of ancient Israel, there, were, there was great temptation to worship the gods of materialism, such as Baal, the god of weather and financial success, and sex, such as Astaroth, the god of sex, romance, and reproduction, or any number of other local deities. 
We're tempted today by the same gods, only with new, less fancy names. It's been said, perhaps first by John Calvin, that human nature is like an idol factory that operates constantly. We constantly deal with the temptation to set all kinds of things uh, before or competing with God and his right place in our lives. This command is God demanding to be more than added to our lives. We don't just add Jesus to the life we already have. We must give him all of our life. You know, we'll often hear Pastor Richard remind us it's Christ plus nothing. He wants to be first and only. Now, some have asked, did the Ten Commandments uh, even, even apply to Christians? Well, Jesus answered with an emphatic yes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. The commandments aren't to be relaxed at all for the Christian, but pushed to the deepest level in the human spirit. You've heard it said, do not murder. Jesus says, don't even be angry. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, don't even lust. It's important then for each of us to take stock daily, really, of what people and things hold a place of prominence in our hearts. Our worship is to be a continual response to covenant because it's rooted in this exclusive loving relationship. And God's kindness, his faithfulness draws us back when his spirit tells us we've strayed. So no to other gods, but God continues adding a second command or some believe expanding on the first by saying this, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I'll stop reading there, but we'll get to the whole punishing children part. I know parents, you're probably looking for this. Kids are bracing. This brings us to our second uh, thing that must be true of our worship. We worship the giver and not the gifts. This is a command about idolatry. And God knows our tendency, as I've said, as created beings to lower our sights, to miss the forest for the trees, to trade the best things for expedience or, or momentary conveniences or pleasures, to become transactional rather than gauge the fullness and even the messiness of relationships. Augustine had this phrase, incurvatus inse. It means curved in on oneself. Our lives can become small, can't they? and about us and our needs. When reality, we were made to look upward toward God and outward toward serving others. We're invited to live into God's grand narrative rather than these lesser stories often shaped by our fears and pain and our unhealthy desires. This commandment was given to keep God in his proper place, orbiting around God and God in his proper scale and form and place at the center. We've been given the real, original thing, but too often we'll settle for a knockoff. Ever accidentally bought a, a knockoff? It's, it's the worst feeling. You can usually tell right away, and for sure you can tell uh, down the road. It's that gold jewelry that turns your skin green. Or I, I once uh, paid about 20 bucks for a genuine pair of Oakleys on, on the beach in Mexico. Folklies, they were broken in a week. God is inviting us to the real thing, the genuine article. He's inviting us to the source, 
to know and worship the giver, not the gifts. I say that because in addition to, to, to fake stuff, the world is full of good and beautiful created things. And even these can become idols. Look around you, just, just maybe where you are in the room with you right now. Maybe it's your, your new pair of shoes that you just feel awesome in or uh, your new non-skinny jeans. Maybe it's your, your new phone or that, or that book that the pages just feel great in your hands. Maybe it's your, your new couch or new rug you got or a watch. Maybe it's something old you treasure, like a family heirloom. I recently got a, a new to me uh, truck. I'd always wanted a truck. And, and sometimes at home, I'll just stare out the window at it. I'd love to take it to the car wash. It's a nice silver calf. It's, it's silver. But I get to, it, I get to drive it around. It, it's a gift for sure. But the thanks, the adoration, the glory goes to the giver, not the gift. Otherwise, I, I, I tuck it away like Gollum. I won't do my impression. And it, it begins to eat away at me. Glory is always meant for God, to the giver, you see. I spent some time this week thinking about the, the idols of, of our day because they seem much less obvious. I was reading it and listening, and I came across a teaching from John Mark Comer, a, a pastor in Portland, a Bridgetown church. He wrote a book that many have read recently, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Just commend it to all of you. He shared that idolatry and ideologies really share the same characteristics. And he wondered if ideologies are the idols of our day. Now, ideologies are, are ideas, but more than that are, are systems and philosophies that seek to explain and even reform and change the world. And this can be rooted in a worthy goal. And yet often they run counter to the gospel. They're counterfeit gospels to God's vision of the world, of rightness and justice. This is a part of what Comer said. We live in the age of ideology on both the right and the left. So don't hear this to score political points against the people who, with whom you disagree. Those are my ads. Ideologies are marked by two basic features. The first, when you take a part of the truth and make it the whole. And the second, when you take, it a, good, when you take a good thing and you make it ultimate so that God is no longer in his rightful place as our ultimate. The common denominator in all ideologies is that they put humanity and its ways and its moral reasoning and its autonomy from God at the center rather than God and his ways and his judgment of good and evil and his authority at the center. And we were created to live in orbit around God, not for anything else to live in orbit around the self. One is the path to heaven. The other is a path to destruction. And we can talk about what these ideologies may be another day, but they exist all around us. God's word constantly warns against them. I'd invite you later, read Colossians 2. But for today, we must understand that there is a war being waged for your heart, for my heart, in the news, on social media, in our popular ways of thinking, and all throughout the structures and systems around us, half-truths peddled and always elevating the self 
and the ways of humanity above the ways of God. Now, if we're not careful, then we can, we can live our truth and follow our hearts as we're told daily on Instagram straight to our own destruction. The Apostle Paul talks about strongholds in 2 Corinthians 10 and God's power to destroy them. Listen to this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Before something becomes a stronghold in your life, in my life, it starts as a foothold. And footholds become strongholds through repetition. It's a, it's a thought that you entertain, a relationship that you flirt with, just this once. And then it spreads like wildfire. God is giving this command as a warning and as a guardrail. Keep me first and only. As we continue, there are two important ways of understanding this prohibition of idols and images. The first is that idols and images compromise God's transcendence. God is the maker of all things and is above and beyond all things. So we're not to box him into some lesser form. And of course, in Exodus 32, as we'll look out on Palm Sunday, Israel does exactly that. But the second and likely more important reason for this prohibition of images and idols is that they distort God's relatedness. Images and statues are immobile, mute, unfeeling, unthinking, and fixed at a point in time. But as one scholar puts it, Israel's God is the one who can speak and feel and act in both nature and history. In this way, to worship images and idols is to deny some basic truths about God's nature and his relationship to the world. When we make God small, when we box God in, we rob God of his glory and his rightful place in our lives and in the world. There's another lesson in this text for us as it relates to idolatry and worshiping the gifts and not the giver. We in the modern church have a way of celebritizing our, our pastors and leaders and artists, falling in love with their, with their gifting, their style, their brands, their authority. And it can ruin them and it can ruin us as well. Just recently, we've again seen leaders in the church fall into sin, believe their own, their own press, shed accountability, and do incredible damage to individual lives and the work of God. And many times out of love and respect for these leaders' gifts, the folks around them with the duty to hold them accountable simply don't do it because they're blind to the sin, they don't believe the allegations, or are afraid of what it would do to their organization. The church belongs to Jesus. And as his followers, even as we submit spiritually to the leaders in our local churches that God has, has uh, raised up, our worship must be aimed at Jesus. Love my singing, love Richard and Abby's teaching, or don't, but the glory always, always, always belongs to God. Love and celebrate God at work in us, but understand it is God's work and it is for God's glory. 
Perhaps part of why God spoke these commands directly to the people instead of through Moses was to make it absolutely clear that they belonged to God and not to Moses or any other leader appointed for a time and place. And God continues in this command, speaking to his jealous love, or perhaps better translated in English, his zealous love. The second command ends in this somewhat jarring way. You heard it at the beginning, and I'll read it again here. At least at a first glance, listen. God continues in his command to say that he is a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Some translations say visiting the iniquity of the parents on the children for three and four generations. But listen to this, but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. This isn't about divine retribution, but it is about our agency and ability to go our own way and to reap the natural consequences of our actions. Part of the warning in these commandments is there is a real and free choice to reject God. We see it around us all the time, but more so the promise is that nothing is beyond the scope of God's love. Even if the consequence of my sin or your sin could reach three or four generations down the line, God's love reaches a thousand generations. So the invitation in these commandments is to continually respond to God's covenantal love and to worship God alone, not a version of God or a gift God's given. And finally, briefly, our worship is to bring honor and justice. God went on to say to the Israelites, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, if you're like me and you grew up around the church, this was like the commandment. Like there were 10 of them, but you knew this one. There are certain words you don't say. To this day, I react less hearing like the worst profanity you could imagine in a movie or something than I do to someone casually taking the Lord's name in vain. So many of us were taught that this command was about not using certain words. Meanwhile, all around us, people and institutions and groups invoke God's name to justify or take part in all sorts of things that grieve the heart of God and tarnish his reputation. This was a big deal in part because God said the nations would know him through Israel. We're repping God's brand and we need to rep it well. At the deepest level, God's name is a matter of mission. Again, God has made us in his image. And since the fall, God has been about recapturing the hearts of all nations. We are to use God's name in a way that honors both God and his mission and those he, he's created and, and loves. Live in a way, worship in a way that brings honor. And Jesus even taught us uh, this when he taught us to pray. He said, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God's name also represents God's vision of the world, how things ought to be. God is making all things new, setting everything right. In this way, God's name is about justice and justice must always be used in pursuit of God's ways. I heard someone say this this week that hate is like a virus, that even accidentally it can spread rapidly. 
We've continued to see violence, even this week, against our Asian brothers and sisters and against people of color. This hatred is born in the hearts of people and comes out of our mouths and too often escalates to physical violence. But even before a hand is laid, people are dehumanized. The image of God in them rejected in our hearts. How do you think and speak and act toward those you perceive are different than you? Pay attention to it. It's revealing how you think about God, God's place in your life, exposing your idolatry. Yes, our our thoughts matter and our language matters. I've honestly had a filthy mouth this past year. Ask my kids. It's a source of shame for me. Reacting in stressful moments with choice words that give some momentary release. But when you look deeper, my language is exposing some disordering of priorities in my life. Places where I've curved in on myself and I've lost perspective. I'm going to invite the band to come and I'll I'll close with this. Douglas Copeland uh, wrote a book called Life After God. And it's this quirky collection of of fictional stories born from his experience as as a Gen Xer. The first generation raised without God in many ways, but nonetheless with strong religious impulses that they're not sure what to do with. At the very end, the narrator makes this beautiful and unexpected admission. Here's what he says. Now, here's my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. That I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving to help me be kind because I no longer seem capable of being kind, of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. I'm grateful for this wilderness of of Lent this past year because it has exposed my drift, a slow drift, but a drift nonetheless, my wandering heart, my need for God. These commands call me back. I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. And so are you. My life, your life, are meant to bring honor and glory to God and show the world what God is like. God has given these commands to to shape our worship. May we each continue to respond to God's covenant love. May we worship the giver and not the gifts. And may our worship bring honor and justice. I'm going to invite us to pray the Lord's Prayer together as, as we close and join in a time of worship. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's continue.